Welcome to the System Speak podcast. If you would like to support our efforts at sharing our story, fighting stigma about dissociative identity disorder, and educating the community and the world about trauma, please go to our website at www.systemspeak.org and there is a button for donations where you can offer a one-time donation to support the podcast or become an ongoing subscriber. We so appreciate the support, the positive feedback, and you sharing our podcast with others. We are all learning together. Thank you. Several months ago, in EMDR training with the ISSTD class, there was a quote that we discussed at length about the subjective phenomenological model of dissociation. And as we discussed the authors, I realized that I knew them from consultation group with Peter. And so I asked John O'Neill to come on the podcast and talk with us about the quote. Dr. John O'Neill is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in Montreal, Quebec. He was assistant professor of psychiatry at McGill University and staff psychiatrist at St. Mary's Hospital until his retirement to private practice in June 2018. Dr. O'Neill joined the ISS MP&D in 1991 and has attended every conference since then, and now as it is called the ISSTD. His private practice has progressively narrowed to the diagnosis and treatment of dissociative disorders. Over the years, Dr. O'Neill became a fellow of the ISSTD, co-taught ISSTD's day-long introductory workshop for eight years, hosted the town hall meetings for six years, became an ASCH-approved consultant, has taught in the ISSTD's professional training program at all adult levels except the master class in Montreal and in Burlington, Vermont, and online. In 2009, the 46-chapter book, Dissociation and the Dissociative Disorders, DSM-5 and Beyond, was published, co-edited by Paul Dell and O'Neill, for which O'Neill received ISSTD's Pierre Genet Writing Award. He is currently an assistant editor of the planned second edition of the book, now being co-edited by past presidents Martin Dore and Steve Gold. You will hear him in the interview reference this book as The Brick because it has a thousand pages and it's a very large book. And it's from this book that the quote we discussed in class originated and why I wanted to talk to him about it. I had not realized until this day in class that my friend John O'Neill from Consultation Group was the same John O'Neill as the author of this book. So it was fun to put that piece together, and we are glad today to welcome John O'Neill to the podcast. Welcome, Dr. O'Neill. You're going to be raising whatever topic you wish to raise with me. Yes, there's only I only have the one specific thing about the quote from you and Paul Dell, but um, just very simply sure. um, about 
how you got into working with dissociation and how you define it and just very it's very very easy okay so hi uh everyone yeah so i'm dr o'neill john o'neill and uh i've been involved in the diagnosis and treatment of uh dissociative disorders for i guess about three decades now and i'm also uh a psychoanalyst and a certified consultant with the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. I have EMDR certification. Oh, and I co-edited uh, a fat book that some people call The Brick because it's a thousand pages long and uh, with Paul Bell in 2009. Currently, it's in its second edition, but this time being co-edited by Martin Darty and Steve Gold with uh, a bit of input from, from Paul and from me. How yeah. did you first get involved with dissociation or first start learning about dissociation? My wife, who's also a therapist, was working at a CEGEP, that's a junior college uh, in Montreal, and... Um, she was referred a patient by a colleague of hers who said, I think this one has multiple personality disorder. And my wife thought, yeah, right. As if that's ever going to show up here. Anyway, she saw her and thought she had multiple personality disorder. So she referred her to me and I saw her and I thought she had multiple personality disorder. And this was a surprise to us. Uh, I, in fact, had seen my first case in 1978 when I was a first-year resident at the Jewish General Hospital in Montreal. Uh, and I thought it was the only one I would see in my career because at the time, the idea was that they were one in a million. And, well, six million people in the province of Quebec, and I'm seeing one of them, what are the chances Anyway, so um, she made a certain impression on me in 78, but not enough for me to really catch on to what to look for. And so uh, then in the early 90s, there was this case that my wife had that I saw, and uh, that sort of revived my uh, interest in the possibility of the diagnosis. And... Uh, and then we went through the usual thing of uh, thinking back over previous cases we had seen before that in retrospect, we thought probably had multiple personality disorder, which is what DID was called in those days. And uh, joined the ISSTD, which at that time was called the ISSMP&D, International Society for the Study of Multiple Personality Disorder and Dissociation. Uh, and uh, then we went on from there. So that's how it began. And uh, so in the 90s, we learned from the, I guess you could say, the, the masters of the time, the, uh, the top gurus of the time. And... Uh, I guess since then, oddly enough, well, I've I've been in it long enough now that I'm considered one of the uh, one of the gurus, especially since co-editing that book with Paul Dell. 
The book with Paul Dell was quoted in a recent EMDR class that I took from the ISSTD EMDR class that they're giving. And when it was talking about dissociation and introducing dissociation specifically, how, before we talk about the quote from the book, how do you usually explain dissociation? When you're doing a training or seeing a client, how do you explain dissociation? I don't use the uh, DSM definition because it's too uh, shotgun, if you like. It's, um, it has too many, um, too many bits of shot and puts them all together. I, uh, I make the fairly strict distinction between kinds of dissociation. And one kind is depersonalization, derealization. Another kind is dissociation of specific mental faculties or functions from central consciousness. So that includes uh, memory, motor functioning, sensation, things like that. Sometimes affect, you can think about, uh, in other words, a particular body part that may be dissociated and so you have anesthesia in that body part. So that would be like dissociation of sensation. You might also have dissociation of uh, motor control so that an arm might be paralyzed or something like that. So you can have bodily symptoms and you can also have psychic symptoms like dissociation of memory if you have amnesia or dissociation of um, affect if you have total blunting of affect or whatever. You can certainly have uh, other kinds of dissociation like dissociation of impulse if you suddenly have no drive or initiative to uh, to eat or to relate or whatever. So you can have various kinds of dissociation of mental functions. And then finally, you can have dissociation of identity or what is really multiplicity of centers of consciousness where there's more than one conscious agent. Um, and that really is uh, restricted to DID and uh, OSDD1 or other specified dissociative disorder example one, which is basically subthreshold DID. And those three meanings are really quite distinct from each other. Uh, even though if you have multiplicity, as in DID or OSDD1, then uh, you or any one of your others or alters or other self-states or whatever language you prefer to use may individually or as a group have uh, symptoms from the other kinds of dissociation, such as depersonalization, derealization, or dissociation of sensation or motor function or whatever. So um, I don't know if that's more confusing than clarifying, but uh, to put it simply, uh, depersonalization, derealization, to some extent stand apart. Uh, and then dissociation of mental functions 
includes amnesia and it includes what normally would be called conversion disorders and then there's multiplicity itself which is sort of something else again this was interesting to me in class and the reason it got my attention is because it's the first time that i saw them in an educational setting distinctly grouped like that even though this work is a classic work any time that I've had, just in public education, a presentation about, or a lecture about, or textbook about dissociation, it only presented it, in my experience, it was only presented as almost like a continuum, but you're explaining that these are different, distinct things. Yeah, each one is its own continuum. So you can have uh, considerable dramatic multiplicity, for example, but um, it may be that depersonalization or derealization is not present as a symptom. And and uh, dissociation of faculties or functions is, that will always, all, almost always be there, but it's, uh, whenever you have it, you wonder what it's about, because they're all presenting symptoms that aren't uh, well, it's never something in its own right. So if you have uh, if you have an anesthesia of a body part, you you need to find out what it's about before you really know anything about it. Or if you have paralysis of a body part, or if you have uh, a uh, flashback, a post traumatic flashback, then you uh, again need to figure out what it's about before you really know where to put it. So some of these things are presenting symptoms that require further investigation to find out what they're really about. And uh, others are, um, well, sort of if they're there, they're there, and that's, that's all there is to it. Uh, if multiplicity is there, then it's simply there, and that's all there is to it. With regard to the other symptoms, they can come and go and uh, need to be further interpreted. You also mentioned EMDR. What is EMDR like in treatment in dissociative disorders? I use it uh, very selectively when there's a specific trauma that comes up in the course of therapy, which is sort of subjectively continues to be subjectively a bit overwhelming to the person concerned and uh, it is one of the ways that uh, one of those traumas can be worked on or worked through it's not the only way but uh, depending on the patient some patients respond better to EMDR some respond better to hypnosis so it's really a clinical judgment call that i make together with the patient as to how best to tackle a given fairly acute and focused symptom what is what about hypnosis you mentioned hypnosis as well what is that like when treating dissociative disorders dissociative disorders are auto-hypnotic so Anyone who has a dissociative disorder is engaged in 
self-hypnosis to some degree. So in treating anyone with a dissociative disorder, uh, there's two ways to go about it. One way is simply to uh, employ or facilitate the patient's own self-hypnotic abilities or whatever, sort sort of... Uh, almost like directing traffic you know suggesting oh why don't you go this way oh okay oh i'll go that way and in patients who are perhaps less spontaneously auto hypnotic uh to um use what we call hetero hypnosis which is where you induce a hypnotic state um to facilitate further work uh so from my point of view working uh, hypnotically and doing therapy with someone that has uh, DID, for example, or OSDD1. And, well, it just comes with the territory. It's automatic. How, how have you seen treatment of dissociative disorders change or evolve from the beginning to now? Uh, in the early 90s, the stress was really on what we would now call stage two and and uh that meant confronting and working through traumas and uh doing a lot of that work um and that led i think to quite a few casualties therapeutic casualties which is what led to the development really of uh, a staged approach where with stage one, you work very hard on uh, uh, containing and maximizing uh, normal functioning, maximizing emotional stability, maximizing sleep regularity and good diet and good self-care and all the sorts of things that someone really ought to pay attention to before you go uh, diving into working through the... uh, specific life events that led to the condition in the first place. So the, um, the major development that I've seen uh, since I got involved um, has been the, uh, the staged approach and the much more careful and gradual uh, approach to treatment than we saw in the early 90s is the major difference what would you want someone who's just being diagnosed with a dissociative disorder to know what would you want them to know it would depend on which dissociative disorder they were diagnosed with there are cases of see um, you said you've never heard the about the three being separated out that way and but way back in dsm2 causation was not part of the creation. And so it stood alone. And uh, the other two kinds were called hysteria, uh, dissociative type and conversion type. And then in uh, DSM-3, those two were separated out. So conversion went over to the somatoform disorders and uh, this, well, MPD, was with the uh, dissociative disorders um, and thrown in there was depersonalization disorder and uh, amnesia and fugue but 
amnesia and fugue could have gone over to the somatoforms, except that it's more in the head than in the body. So the divisions that you said were uh, novel to you have very clear um, representatives in the history of how to classify dissociation. And uh, so when faced with a, a client today, it depends on whether they have pure depersonalization, derealization disorder, or if they have uh, relatively pure dissociative amnesia with or without fugue, or relatively uh, pure somatoform dissociation, because that's the other word that's given to it, um, or most commonly some form of multiplicity that has some blend of those other uh, symptoms mixed in. So um, depends a lot on, on the uh, diagnosis, keeping in mind at the same time, of course, that any of the uh, symptomatic displays of what we call dissociative symptoms, such as depersonalization, derealization, or uh, sensory motor conversion or pseudo-neurological symptoms can all be uh, surface presentations of, of uh, underlying multiplicity, but they aren't all necessarily that. So diagnosis is important and it's often um, a work in progress. It can sometimes take um, weeks or months to really pin down exactly what the underlying condition is. And certainly I've had patients whose multiplicity didn't show up for a couple of years. And then it was not dramatic, but uh, it still did show up and made a major difference in treatment once we could address it. Pure depersonalization, derealization disorder remains a bit of a statistical outlier or the odd member of the group. It's less well understood. The cause is less well understood. The treatment is less well understood. Despite the fact that it's perhaps or seems to be less severely symptomatic, fairly narrow, it can be uh, quite severe and uh, may need to be uh, treated in a way that's quite different from some of the other dissociative disorders. So it depends very much on uh, on the patient and how they present and uh, what you figure out, is what you and the patient together figure out what it is that needs to be dealt with. Why do you think that these pieces are not taught? Like, why is so much left out? I feel like if I had not found ISSTD and received such incredible training through the classes and webinars and conferences and trainings that there's so much I never would have known because it was not taught at all. And when I work in hospitals, the doctors and physicians and emergency room people, like they have no idea. They really they, it's not just that they're stereotyped against it or because of stigma. Like, there's really a gap in knowledge. Why Why does that happen? 
Well, it happens because most people wish that it didn't exist, especially multiplicity. And uh, even within the DSM-5, it's been true ever since the DSM-3, and even in the DSM-5, if you don't specifically go to the section on dissociative disorders, you don't read about it anywhere in the rest of the DSM-5. So if you're uh, reading the section in dissociative disorders in the DSM-5, then uh, when it comes to um, differential diagnosis, you'll be referred to schizophrenia, you'll be referred to ADHD, to bipolar disorder, to anxiety disorders, to PTSD, to personality disorders, to substance use disorders, uh, as you read through the, you know, different things that ought to go through your mind when uh, seeing a patient that you think may have a dissociative disorder. But when you go to any of those other sections, dissociative disorders are never mentioned. Um, so that's a, an internal contradiction within the DSM-5 for which there is no good excuse. Um, if you go to schizophrenia, it will not mention as a possibility uh, a dissociative disorder. If you go to affective disorders or bipolar, it won't mention DID as a possibility. Most egregiously, I guess, if you go to borderline personality disorder, uh, even though one of the criteria says uh, transient stress-induced paranoid or dissociative symptoms, it won't list a dissociative disorder in the um, differential diagnosis of borderline personality disorder. So these are... Um, Basically, um, anyone who doesn't specifically look at the dissociative disorders will read the rest of the DSM and conclude that dissociative disorders don't exist. You never prompted to think about them. And uh, so if you have a, a gross deficit like that in a document as uh, important as the DSM, it's not surprising that you'll find it as well in uh, other approaches to mental functioning. As another example, if you look over the criteria for general personality disorder in DSM-5, uh, you find that uh, a general personality disorder assumes and requires that there be only one pattern of functioning, one pattern of personality expression and so on um, and that immediately means that anyone that has any form of multiplicity uh, can't have a personality disorder and uh, isn't being talked about in that entire section despite the fact that most people that have internal others other self states alters others whatever you want to call them um, the uh, personality differences within a given person may be really quite dramatic and um, at times even um, exaggerated. So that's another example. Virtually all 
personality theorists assume that there's only one personality that one can have. Um, and so if you were to ask the majority of psychiatrists and the majority of academic psychologists, uh, what do you think of dissociative disorders? The accurate answer would be, we don't think of them at all. What would you tell either new clinicians or clinicians who are new to treating trauma or dissociative disorders? Where can they start to learn? Well, they can start to learn by, by you can point them to the dissociative disorders section of DSM-5. That's kind of the baseline, rudimentary, entry-level sort of thing, uh, because it's short, it's sweet, but more important, it's official. Pick something really simple. The population of Greater Montreal is about 3 million. And uh, so if you live in a, an urban setting that's around 3 million, the official prevalence of DID is supposed to be 1.5%. And 1.5% um, uh, means that there's, uh, there's 45,000 45,000 cases of DID in Greater Montreal. That, by the way, is a huge number. It's more than the number of schizophrenics. It's uh, way more than the number of illnesses that are readily identifiable, like rheumatoid arthritis or uh, things like that. Most illnesses are numbered by prevalence in uh, number of cases per 100,000. Um, but when you have 1.5 cases per 100, then uh, you're dealing with a huge prevalence, which despite that fact, uh, well, they generally aren't identified. I think there's a good reason for that, which is that the range of symptom expression of people, let's say with DID, is enormously wide. And I think it's kind of uh, obvious, given the numbers, that the huge majority of people with DID fly under the radar, um, don't become symptomatic enough to uh, be brought to the attention of uh, clinicians and uh, live their lives and then die without ever being identified. Uh, so anyone with uh, DID who's identified as having it at any point in their lives are at least in the um, medium range, if not the uh, severe or extreme range of symptom expression for DID. So, um, yeah, so that's why certainly in the earlier days, they typically showed up with diagnoses of uh, atypical schizophrenia or atypical bipolar disorder or bi borderline personality disorder or uh, atypical anxiety disorder or complex PTSD or whatever, um, but rarely ended up actually getting the, the correct diagnosis of, uh, of DID or MPD in the old days. Well, there's one issue that we haven't brought up, which is the reason you decided to invite me. 
uh, <laughs> to talk at all, which had to do with the um, phenomenological definition of dissociation. Oh, that's right? that's right. So in the EMDR class, in the training manual, it's on page yeah. 39. I don't know if you have a copy of the manual, but it's on page 39. It says the subjective phenomenological model of dissociation by Paul Dell and John uh -huh. O'Neill have suggested that dissociation has two distinct sets of phenomena whose relationship remains uncertain and which commonly co-occur, faculty dissociation and multiplicity. Oh, okay. Yeah. And uh, there, I guess, depersonalization, derealization are folded into faculty, although they really do stand apart. Um, the uh, subjective phenomenological model of uh, DD is it's more Paul Dell's approach, and uh, it has to do with what symptoms are most typically... Uh, by the way, phenomenolo phenomenological means what is it that the patient experiences? That's what phenomenological means. And what is it that the patient experiences that they can describe to you and that you can put a name to? So that would be the phenomenology of uh, dissociation. So what are those symptoms? And they include things like depersonalization, derealization, uh, intrusions uh, such as hearing a voice or getting an image or feeling something in the body or finding your one, one of your body parts doing something that you didn't do on purpose with a hand or a gesture or something or saying something that you didn't intend to say but the words just come out and there it is so very much the intrusions, uh, the amnesia, of course, um, and so on. So the phenomenology is anything that you can attribute to any symptom that a, a patient may have, which indicates to you that there is some dissociation going on in the patient. Uh, and so the, the uh, range of... Uh, symptoms is really very uh, very high and in the case of uh, uh, DID or OSDD1 the the most uh, glaring of these would be um, these sort of subjective intrusions uh, into your own consciousness so that's the uh, phenomenological model of that, uh, that Paul prefers. Uh, we had lots of debates about it, though, because uh, if you see dissociation as that which keeps things apart, then every time you have an intrusion that's not being kept apart very well, if it were being kept apart really well, then it wouldn't be intruding on you. So those are, again, two different ways of using the word dissociation. You can have someone with... Uh, rather strict severe DID for example whose host personality experiences absolutely nothing except lost time or amnestic episodes and there may be evidence from 
other people and from everything else about what they were like and what they did and all that sort of thing during the amnestic episode. And they may have no consciousness of that at all. So in that case, the only symptom is amnesia. Uh, on the other hand, if they also experience intrusions and co-presence and sort of unintended acts and symptoms in the body, then this, uh, from one point of view, you can say, oh, that's all dissociation. You can also say, yeah, but it also means that the dissociation is starting to weaken because you're getting all these leakages, in a sense, and intrusions from the others. So they aren't as dissociated as they used to be. They're now a little closer, a little less dissociated. So, Sorry to interrupt you. Is that why it can feel worse before it feels better? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Because, uh, you know, if you have complete, like, airtight dissociation, then all you know is yourself and amnesia. Uh, but if you start to have leakage of dissociative barriers so you then experience all these intrusions or co-presences and all that sort of thing it may be from a subjective point of view highly uncomfortable although from a, a strictly degree of pathology point of view if you want to put it that way that's because you're becoming slightly less dissociative and some of the divisions between you and your others uh, are starting to weaken and you're starting to have more co-consciousness, more co-presence, more symptom sharing and so on and so on. Yeah, so exactly what you just said is, uh, is quite true indeed. Does that make sense? It does, thank you. Is there anything else you'd like me to comment on? Or that you want my opinion on? Um, there's just, like you said, it's just so big and there's so many pieces. And this specific quote was what I was curious about, but you explained that. Um, it lists, on the paper, it lists them two separately, the faculty dissociation and multiplicity. But you are separating out a third one as well to put depersonalization and derealization in a third group. Is that right? Um, it's not really that I'm separating it out. I'm uh, declining to put it together. Because <laughs> remember, it started separate. It started separate in ICD-9, DSM-2, and then it was put together by DSM-3. So it's only been considered dissociative since 1980. And ICD-10 declined to put them together. ICD-11 is finally putting them together. Um, but uh, uh, depersonalization, derealization remains kind of the oddball in all of this, which basically means that it's uh, really difficult to figure out exactly what it's about and what causes it and how to treat it and how it arises and everything else. Uh, for example, for uh, faculty or functional dissociation or uh, multiplicity, 
the um, origins in trauma and neglect are much clearer than for uh, depersonalization, derealization. And uh, depersonalization, derealization seems to be more like related to disordered attachment. Now, I know you've had Peter Barish on, and he's talked about detachment as, uh, or rather, uh, disordered attachment as um, a key to all dissociative disorders. And I think he's uh, right in that regard. But you almost always get trauma as well in in those other things. Whereas in personalization, derealization disorder, you often can't get a real history of, of trauma or overt neglect. Um, but you may get uh, basically bad, screwy, inappropriate um, mother-child attachment patterns, um, but not necessarily more than that. That doesn't mean that that's what it is, but that's that's what um, that's what tends to show up. That goes back to Simone's research in the spring with the MRI scans about relational trauma being more damaging neurologically. Yes. And uh, that's been true quite a while. Uh, And it's interesting that on the one hand, it's always easier to notice, to put your finger on, to point to a a trauma because it's a specific event. And it is to uh, point to something that's missing. It's always easier to identify bad things that happened that shouldn't have happened than it is to notice or identify good things that didn't happen that should have happened. And uh, at the same time, though, all of the research that points to um, basically attachment and neglect on the one hand versus overt trauma on the other. It's the attachment and neglect that uh, are better predictors of uh, multiplicity and other kinds of pathology than the trauma itself. So like I say, the trauma is easier to notice and to deal with and to confront and to identify and everything else. But it's not as important either from a cause point of view or from a treatment point of view. Not as easy. (laughs) It's it's harder to notice and harder to treat. Let's put it that way. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That'll do for today. (laughs) (laughs) No, you were brave and good. Thank you. I'm sorry to have bothered you. I just, I didn't even know. Um, I don't know. I hadn't connected the dots even that I knew the name and the book, but I didn't realize it was you. And we were in class, and he was talking about you. And I was like, wait, wait, I know this guy. (laughs) So I just wanted to hear from you. (laughs) Uh Yeah, sure. It was interesting because I I don't know, you know, what was blocking that there, but I had literally not connected you to the book. And so when Mm. I heard you in class, I thought, oh. I know who that is. I need to ask him. I can just ask him.
Well, I think you've seen Paul as well, right? Yes, yes, in our group. In our group, yeah. But, uh, well, there he is. And, uh, yeah, just to underscore that he and I don't disagree about anything really substantive. In fact, from a substantive point of view, we, we agree on pretty well everything. Um, it's just with regard to what slant or what interpretation or what use you want to put the word dissociation to. And he puts it to one use and I put it to another. So that's the main difference. I love that, though, the capacity to have different perspectives on the same pieces and put them to use different ways. That's very different than what's happening in America right now with politics. Isn't it, though? Yes. Okay, Emily. So that was fun. Thank you so and, much. Uh, I appreciate it. And, and good luck with the podcast. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us with System Speak, a podcast about dissociative identity disorder. You can listen to the podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and iTunes, or follow along on our website, www.systemspeak.org. Thanks for listening.